Good morning, everybody. You can go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Greeley. Welcome. Uh, my name is Pastor Luke, and I have the privilege of teaching you guys once again this morning. Um, thankful for the opportunity I had last month to teach on the story of Naaman, and many of you it, it really blessed. And so today I'm excited. We're going to go right back to the book of 2 Kings, and this is a passage that God put on my heart a while ago. I, I knew I wanted to teach it to you, and I knew that last month wasn't the time, um, but we get to go back to it today. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Luke, and I'm the youth and young adult pastor here at Calvary Chapel Greeley. My dad is Pastor Jeff. He's the one who's normally up here teaching on a Sunday morning, and he is in Peru. And if you've been praying or thinking about him and my sister, they got to Peru safely, and they are healthy. And uh, one of the students uh, messaged me a picture of my dad playing him in ping pong. And so he's doing pretty well. I think he's doing good. Uh, so yeah, definitely keep him in your prayers. And so I'm excited to take you to a story today about a mom and her son and a healing of Elisha. And this story has really been ripping at my heart for a while. Um, parenting has been on my heart for a while. Um, I've been married for six and a half years to Ashley, and uh, we are expecting a baby. So um, she is due at the end of March. So we can definitely use a lot of prayer. Um, and I've been talking to some people, and when they congratulate me or I tell them, I, like, in all sincerity, ask them, do you have any tips? Do you have anything? And they did that. They laughed. They laughed at me because something, like, you have no idea. How, you, how are you supposed to explain parenting in one sentence? Um, but people have been summarizing it by saying, get your sleep now. And then I'm not kidding you, between first and second service, there had to have been like three people who told me that um, I'm not going to get any sleep. And then one guy said, you got to put toothpicks in between your eyes <laughs> to keep your eyes open. Um, so thanks for the suggestions. I, I appreciate that. Uh, prayers would be, would be awesome. And so we want to be good parents. Um, we're reading about a mom in this story. And I had a great mom. My mom is here. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag about you a little bit. Um, she did a lot for us. Uh, she cooked for us. She was a full-time cook. She was a full-time teacher because she homeschooled us. Full-time Uber driver. And so we could finally drive ourselves. Um, full-time nurse. We were always sick. Uh, counselor. When we thought it was the end of the world, when something happened, she had to um, help us out. So I'm thankful for my mom. I'm thankful... And I know that there's a lot of you out there who are thankful for a mom, a grandma, just a woman in your life. And if you are a mom, like, thank you. I know it's not Mother's Day, but they won't let me preach on Mother's Day. So I'm just going to tell you right now in October, it's fine. So thank you. And we get to read a, a really incredible story about a woman who really would do anything for her son. And in fact, she went to pretty much the end of the earth in order to get her son saved. And so our passage is in 2 Kings. Um, I loved going there so much that I decided to go back there again today. We're going to be in chapter 4. Um, essentially, kind of what's taking place during this time, it's the 9th century BC, and it's during a time when Israel is divided into the northern and uh, the northern 10 tribes and then the southern two tribes called Judah. And Elisha has a rough job because his job is to be the prophet for the nation of Israel. Israel was always in rebellion. There was no word of the Lord really going um, through to any of the kings. And so it was rough. And God used Elijah not just to be a voice, but God used Elisha to work miracles. And in fact, Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah did. 
And so he was a man who was used by God greatly. And so let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to read the story of the healing. God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to teach again, and I do pray for those who are in a place where they can do almost nothing about their situation, and they need to turn to you. Lord, what is falling apart in their hands, I pray that they surrender to you. They give you control of everything. I pray, Lord, if they feel like they are hurting or broken or even dead inside, I pray that they would invite you into their heart to make you alive and living. God, we just thank you so much. And in your name we pray, amen. Awesome. Let's go ahead and open up the word of God. So pull out your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 4, and I will read 8 through 13. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn there. And it happened one day when he came there, he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he had called her, he stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So we're introduced to a woman who lives in the town of Shunem. The town of Shunem was southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And we don't know the name of this woman. We know that she lives in this town, that she's wealthy, she's notable, and that she was very generous and hospitable. And as she would watch the man of God pass by her house very often, she said to herself, surely this is a man of God, and I want to do something to bless him. And so the first thing she had to do is convince him and urge him to come and have a meal at her house. She obviously had to make a meal, and then in addition, she would make a room for him where he could stay as he was passing by. Now, this woman was not only generous, but she was also very persistent, and she was filled with a lot of faith in that way. And I think that she had just the right amount of touch of stubbornness as well, because it said that she had to urge Elisha just to come over to her house for a meal. It's not like Elijah was just showing up being like, man, I really wish there was a hot meal right here, right now. This would be a nice place to stay. No, she had to actually convince him to come over. And that's one of the hardest parts of ministry is it's, 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 it's great getting set up. It's great making a meal. But it's another thing to actually get schedules aligned and actually get people over to your house so that you can bless them. It's hard. And it was hard for her to get Elijah over to her house. But she did because she was persistent. The other thing she did is she had on her heart to make a place for him to stay as he would pass through. It was very common back in the day for Jewish people to open up their homes to consistent travelers that they saw walking by their homes. And if they had an additional room or if they had a futon or something like that, they would let the travelers stay inside of their house. But she wasn't just a woman who had nine extra rooms in her house. 
I know that she was wealthy. I know that she was notable. But it doesn't sound like she just had a spare bedroom. She had to actually make and construct a whole entire new room on the roof or on the wall. And if you notice, she doesn't just make this decision like, oh, I'm going to have some people make him food and I'm going to have somebody else make the room. But if you notice in verse 10, if, if you see it, it says, let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there. There could have been a lot of reasons why this woman wanted to do it herself. I think she was the type where she wanted to get her hands dirty, roll up her sleeves and DIY it with her husband. It could be too that if she just made her husband do it, it wouldn't have gotten done. Um, So she made sure that she was part of this process. Uh, But either way, I do see this woman as giving something that she had to go out and she had to make. If you notice that she had to make the meal, the meal didn't appear. She had to literally make Elisha come over. It wasn't happening automatically. And then she had to construct this room that didn't exist prior in order to give to Elisha. And I think that when we are in a place where God is stirring our heart to give either of our time, of our resources, or our money, our first excuse that comes to our our heart is we don't have anything to give. We are booked 100%. We wait for there to be just some magical cash left over or some magical time left in the day or some magical words to pop in our heart to say to somebody. And so we just don't do anything. We don't make eye contact with people and we continue on. And I think I can, I can speak for myself for sure. Um, our lives are crazy. Like there was a reason why all of you laughed when you said, um, like children, they change your life, absolutely. And you are booked like 110%. And what happens when God starts putting like a leading on your heart to take a step of faith? Even something as simple as having family devotions or something as simple as having another family over to your house or something as simple as spending more time in prayer. We consult our calendar, and it's the wrong thing to consult oftentimes because it's busy from morning till night. And I remember in like 10th or 11th grade, I went on a youth retreat, and there was a a youth leader named Mark there, and he loved us so much, and he was always convincing us to have these daily devotions with the Lord. In 10th, 11th grade, I thought I had the greatest excuse on planet Earth for not doing my devotions. I said, you know... I'm too busy. I have no time. And I thought that my 10th grade life was like filled with all sorts of very important stuff from top to bottom. I was convinced of it. And thank goodness he took me serious because he said, oh, you got to make time. You have to like make it. And I was like, make time. There's only 24 hours in the day. How in the world do you make another hour in the day? So I don't know. You got to figure that out. That's for you to figure out. But I just started realizing that if God is putting even something very simple on your heart, a lot of times you have to construct that time. You have to make it in order to give it. And so everything that she gave to the Lord, she had to first make. And so this woman, she was very persistent, but not only her... Elisha was too. And Elisha wanted to bless her in return. And so what Elisha does is he sends Gehazi and he has Gehazi have this conversation with the woman. And so she came to the room and Gehazi thanked her for being so caring and loving. And in verse 13 asks, what can I do for you? And so the suggestion 
was we can put in a good word for you with the commander of the army or we can put in a good word for you and your husband with the king. And I'm sure being a wealthy and notable people, they this would have helped them a little bit, you know, grow in their status, maybe grow in their wealth, grow in some priority list that they had back then. But immediately after this, she answered, I dwell among my own people, which was a fancy King James way of saying, I'm good with my own family. I'm content living with my family and my family takes good care of me. And she knew that what she most likely longed for wasn't something that a person could give. But Elijah, he's stubborn as well. And so read in verse 14, it says, so he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. So Elisha is extremely persistent as well, and he wants to make sure that this woman is blessed. And so he ended up having to ask Gehazi, because this woman, I'm sure, was very content. She was happy with her family. She was good. And Gehazi was, was very noticeable in the way that he said, well, she has no son, and her husband, he is old. Not something that I heard her complaining about in the kitchen. It's just something that I have noticed about her. And this was a very noticeable thing. We don't really notice this about people today, but back in ancient Israel, if you did not have a son for a notable woman like she was, that was honestly the worst case scenario. It was almost shameful or dishonoring to not be able to give your husband, who is now old, who is going to pass away, a son that he can pass on the family name to and the inheritance and have the joy. And so she didn't have a son. And so Gehazi mentions this and Elijah calls her back into the room. This time Elisha is actually talking to her and she is standing in the doorway, the doorway that she and her husband have made. And the doorway is open. And I believe that that represents an opportunity that she is before an opportunity that is even a little bit scary, an opportunity that is a little bit frightening. And Elisha says to her, this time next year, you are going to embrace a son. It wasn't just, you're going to have a son, but he used the term embrace, giving her the picture of actually holding a son in her arms, something that every mother wants and looks forward to. And I think in her, in her life, I don't think that this was her greatest dream, having a son. I think it was at one point, but I don't think this is her greatest dream. I think by now, considering the fact that she says, I'm good with my family, my family takes care of me, and there's nothing that a king or a commander of an army can give me, and there's nothing a person can give, only God can give what I really wanted, I think by now it's her greatest disappointment because she knows that that door is closed. And she's standing in the doorway of, of opportunity and Elisha, not even asking, hey, um, my, my servant came up with a good suggestion. Tell me what you think about it. 
It was just flat out, you are standing in a doorway, and this time next year, you are going to embrace a son. And the first thing she said was, no, no way. There is no way that that's going to happen because she knew that that was an impossible thing that that was going to take place. I mean, she even knew the story of Abram. When God called Abram to move to land that he did not know, he hinted at the fact that he's going to be the father of a great nation. But it was 25 years after God promised that to Abraham, that he had his son Isaac, the promised child. And for her, she knew that Abraham was this man of importance. He was a patriarch, the father of a great nation. And they all knew about him. And for her, she's just a woman. She's just a woman who literally saw the man of God, who she thought was a man of God, passing by the house. She wanted to give him a meal. She wanted to give him a place to stay. And that was it. She never asked for this. And so she said, no. Don't get my hopes up like that. Please don't play a joke on me. And please don't deceive me. And this is something that the promise stood, no matter what. When Elisha said she was going to have this son, it stood. And so what happens is that she does conceive and she does give birth to a son. And then verse 18 comes along and ruins it. So let's go ahead and read verse 18. And the child grew. And now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. The worst possible thing takes place. The child is growing strong. She's able to hold him. And he was old enough even to be helping his father out in the field. Nothing bad can happen at this point. And Finally, it came to stop when he said, my head, my head. Turns out that those were the last words he would ever speak to his father. His father sent him home to his mother, and his mother held him in her lap, and he passed away at noon. And when someone dies like this, it was really important in Jewish culture that you bury the body immediately. Dead bodies are considered unclean, and it was not something that you wanted in the house. It made the entire household unclean, and they were unable to worship. And from what I can interpret from this passage, it was probably a normal procedure to immediately give the boy to a servant or the husband so that it could be buried. But this is why we are looking at this story. And this is why I believe that this healing is in the Bible because she was so persistent. She held on to promises. She held on to hope and she refused to bury what was promised to her, refused to bury it. And so what she did is she brought the boy up the stairs. She brought him to the room that her and her husband built. She opened the door, laid him in the bed that she put in there And he was there. And it's believed that possibly this boy, this was his room by now. This was no longer the prophet's room. And it's, it it can be believed that the prophet Elisha hasn't come by to stay in this room. And in Jewish culture, often they would build um, rooms on, in addition to 
the house of the parents for the son specifically. And so the son would live there with his family and eventually the son would take over the inheritance, the property and whatnot. And I think about this. And if you think deep about this, she didn't have an extra room and she didn't have a son. And when she built this place to give to Elisha, it wasn't just her building something she did not have to give, but she built something that really should have been for her son in the first place. She gave the place of her disappointment as well. The greatest disappointment possibly in her life. And now it's beyond a disappointment. Like she got experience years with the boys. And now she's bringing it to a place where there's hurt and confusion and she doesn't know what's going on. And, and the only thing she can do is, is lay him in the bed that she made and, and, and something that no mom wants to do. She walks out of the room and she shuts the door. The Bible says specifically that she shuts the door and it is now a closed door, a complete closed door. The door that she made is now completely shut in front of her. And it's interesting that she must have had made a choice because she decided not to bury the boy. She wasn't going to do that right away. But she wasn't scared of a closed door because with a closed door, there was some sort of a hope still. And so this is what she does in verse 22. It says, then she called to her husband and said, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And it was when the man of God saw her far off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, it is well. Verse 27, now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone for her soul is in deep distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? So as a woman, she stood there with the closed door and with the boy in the bed dead. She knew that there was a difference between a closed casket and a closed door. She knew and she interpreted it as a promise that was given to her that she was going to hold on to. And so she decided that she needed to pursue after the man of God who promised it in the first place. She knew that when a promise seems to be broken, you bring it back to the one who spoke it into existence to begin with. And that was Elisha for her. And so she tells her husband that she's going to go find the man of God. Her husband says, you know, why go today kind of a thing. She doesn't listen. She says, it's all good. It's all well. She tells the servant to saddle a donkey. She tells the servant to not tell the animals to slacken the pace. And so she continues and she travels 50 miles to Mount Carmel where Elisha was at. And Elisha, seeing her afar off, sends Gehazi. Gehazi was a lot younger, so maybe he was faster, and so he runs up to her, and Gehazi asks, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she says, it is well. 
just completely covering up the fact that something was wrong. She, I guarantee, was looking over Gehazi's shoulders, looking for the man of God, the one who spoke that promise in the first place. I don't know if she was like, look over there, and then she ran past Gehazi, but she ended up running to the man of God, Elisha. She clinched at Elisha's feet, and Gehazi is running to try and keep up with her. He is trying to push the woman off of Elisha, and she is clinching onto Elisha, and this wasn't the case where she got to Elisha, and she's like, hey, remember me, you know, a long time ago, I made a room for you, and you promised me the son. Turns out my son is not doing very well, so if you're headed this way towards Shunem, stop by my place, see what you can do. She is clinching onto his feet while Gehazi is trying to get her off, and the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, did I ask for this? Did you not say this? Why did you let this come into my life if it was just going to die? And I think this is like a whole nother level. Like it's, it's one thing that she never had a son. That was one thing. That was something that she had to, in a sense, bury in her life. And I think she did, in a sense, because when Gehazi asked her, is there anything we can do for you? She said, I'm good. Like my family. She mentioned her family. Her family was all that she needed. She was content. And when she said, did I not ask, the fact that, you know, she got called to the room, that she built, all she wanted to do was bless him. She stood in this doorway that was open, and she wasn't asked, hey, does the sun sound good? She was told, this time next year, you're going to embrace a son. And all this, I'm sure, is overwhelming for her. And you know, for, for our Christian walk, that's one of the hardest questions to answer. And I don't think that we can narrow it down to just one answer. Why does God allow something to come into your life if it's only going to be taken away? I've been there. I know a lot of you guys have in, in, in much different ways, but the same place. Something came into your life and you wonder why it came into your life if it was just going to be taken away. And I think about this and how my dad, he always says, tomorrow is not promised to any of us. And I always say, well, we can still plan for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> but it's humbling to think that, you know, even your next breath, even your next heartbeat, it's not really promised to you. This physical body that we have, there's, there's really, even though your, your health may fail you and your body is going to wither away, I do believe that there are greater promises, though. Even though we're not promised our next heartbeat, we are promised, if we are a believer, eternal life. We are promised life after this life we are living right now. We are promised as a believer that our last breath on earth is our first breath in heaven. We are promised and we are surrounded by a greater promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. We are surrounded by a greater promise that he always sees us. He, we are surrounded by a promise that he will always feed us and clothe us. If he clothes the lilies, if he feeds the sparrows, how much more is he going to pay attention to you? You hold on to the promise. And I do believe that this woman, she saw it as that. She saw it as a promise of you said this. You said I was going to embrace my son. And instead of embracing him alive, I'm embracing him carrying up the stairs because he passed away. And for you, the enemy really wants you to bury a perfectly good promise in your life. He wants you to bury the promise 
that God is always with you because you feel alone, that nobody else is with you. He wants you to bury the promise that you have eternal life because you feel like you've sinned the day of grace away and you cannot come to him. He wants you to throw it out like a perfectly good house plant that you think you killed, but you did not. There is resurrection life ahead and the promise still stands. So do not bury what God is trying to call inside of you to live. And so this is what the woman does. She's persistent. And so verse 29 says, Then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As surely uh, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child laying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. So in this dramatic scene of her holding on to Elisha. Elisha realizes that the son is dead. And so the first thing he does is send Gehazi. And I think this was a reaction out of like, get the paramedics there as soon as possible. I think Elisha was a little older, a little slower. He had a lot of stuff, but Gehazi seemed to be pretty mobile. So here, take the staff, lay it on the boy. But as soon as Gehazi got there, he laid it on the boy and nothing happened. It did not work. And so Gehazi ended up coming back to get Elisha. Now the woman, she was very persistent. And so she told Elisha that I'm, go- I'm not going to leave you. Like I'm holding on to you. Now you have to come over. Like there's no way you're going to get out of this. And so Elijah and the woman ended up traveling back. Now I don't know about you, but 50 miles, when you just went 50 miles, that's a long journey. And especially when you have something that's heavy on your heart, especially when you don't know the outcome, especially when you're traveling 50 miles and all the should-haves come up and all the would-haves come up and all the could-haves came up. And she's making this journey, and my goodness, she did a lot. Like she was the one who held the boy when she died, when he died. She was the one who carried him up the stairs. She was the one who laid him in the bed. She was the one who basically had to tell the servants, don't slow down. She was the one who had to do the swim move on Gehazi and get to Elisha. She was the one who had to hold on to Elijah and said, uh-uh, I'm not leaving you until you come see my boy. She was the one who had to make the 50-mile journey back. And I think that this is probably the most incredible thing when you read about Elisha, as they are but a few steps from the boy, shuts the door, closes the door. Out of all things, I think that she was ready to walk right in. She was going to be there for her boy. She's done this, 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 and the other thing. She was a good mom. She was going to be right by the bed when this healing took place. Shut the door. And this was probably the most powerless feeling of all time. The door that she made, too. And this is a point in her life where she can do nothing. For a woman who is really used to doing something all the time, 
probably the first time in a while where she could do absolutely nothing. And I think about that place as a Christian where you are left and you can do nothing. One young man told me that when his wife was giving birth, there were complications and there was a point in time when he had to be taken out of the room. He said that was the hardest thing. He knows he has no medical experience or anything. He knows that he would be no help to the doctors. But leaving and being on the other side of the door where you don't know what's happening, you don't know what's going on, you can't be there with them, it's one of the hardest things. And I was like, man, I I think I would have kicked down that door too if I were in that situation. And this woman, I think she could have kicked down the door because she was tough. Like the walls of Jericho coming down, I do believe she could have, but she chose not to. She chose not to. She chose to be in a place where she could do nothing. I think it took great faith for her to do all that she did for her son, but I think it took great faith for her to be on the other side of the door where she could do nothing. And in fact, I think it took even greater faith to be in a place where she could do absolutely nothing. And as preachers, we're always talking about open doors, open doors here, opportunity, opportunity. But we don't talk enough about those closed doors in our life. I remember growing up, It was like eighth or ninth grade, and I was really struggling with um, my school. I I had to do um, this therapy with my eyes that took like an hour every single day, and I had to wear these like funny goggles. You remember that, Mom? And um, it was a big turning point in my life. I actually never told you the story. I told it to the other services, though, so I have to tell a third service. Um, And I remember I just wasn't doing well, wasn't doing well with my attitude, wasn't doing well in life, and my parents, they always had an open door, always an open door. They said, if you want to come talk, I'm here for you. And I remember they invited me in, I talked with them, I was able to share, you know, and and they were able to share just where they want to see me grow, they want to see me become a man of God. They they took away my phone because I was getting in a lot of trouble at the time with my phone. And so I left, and usually their door was open, But as I left, they closed it and then started talking about me. They closed it. And it was very distinct. They they shut the door. And I could hear, you know, mumble, mumble, Luke. Mumble, mumble, Luke. And so I just stayed and I listened. I I just wanted to listen to what they had to say. And to be honest, I I kind of expected, yeah, next time we talk to Luke, we're going to tell him this. And then we're going to tell him about this life story. And then we're going to convince him over here and bring this passage. And we got him. We got him in the place that we want him. And they actually, they were actually praying. And they were praying in a way that they had no control over me. And that was weird. Because they made my schedule. (laughs) They drove me everywhere. They told me what to wear. And for the first time, I'm experiencing them praying in a way that they had no control over me. Acknowledging the fact that they couldn't be there every time I texted somebody, or they couldn't be there every time I moved out or went somewhere or made a decision. And they prayed for me in a way that was just like a closed closed door. And that they couldn't be there for everything in my life. And they couldn't. They couldn't be there when I got married. They couldn't be there when I went to college. They couldn't be there uh, during my hardest points in my life. They couldn't be there. And even though, yeah, like I am here every day. I see my dad. I see my mom. We have a good relationship. I live 10 minutes away from them. But they can't be there for every single thing in my life. And at some point, the closed door was more powerful than the open door in that way. 
where they acknowledged that they couldn't be there, but God could. Somebody else was in the room, and they were left with prayer. And there was one youth mom who came to me a while ago, and she said, we're breaking. Like, you, you know this process that we've been going through with my son, but I feel like my son has died inside, and I feel like there's no life in him, and he's changed, and I don't know what has happened, and I don't understand what's all on his phone, and I don't get it. And it was this moment where it's like, okay, you have done everything in your power. You have been super mom. You have been super dad. But there is a point when that door is shut, and you cannot go into that room. You cannot go into that space with them. And this is where, as a church, we come together and we pray because it's the only thing that we can do. It really is. Because God is on the other side of the door. And there was a quote that I will never forget from Corey Ten Boom. She was a Holocaust survivor. And she said, the wonderful thing about prayer is that you leave a world of not being able to do something. Something that you have no control over. And you enter God's realm where everything is possible because God specializes in the impossible. And she knew this because she was once in this German prison cell. I read her biography and her sister was down the row a little way in a small prison cell, but then also her dad and her dad was super old. He was a, a watchmaker in Harlem and he was declining in health already before all this happened. And now he's in this cold, dark cell and he's just coughing And she said that once she heard that coughing stop, it meant that he had passed on. But even though she knew she was probably going to lose her dad, even though she thought she was going to lose Betsy at that time, her sister, she held on to this greater hope of a resurrection. She held on to a greater hope that God even works the impossible, even if that impossible is heaven, is salvation, is some sort of beauty coming from all the ashes that are around her. And she wasn't scared of a closed door. And in fact, I think if she were here teaching you guys this morning, she would say, nothing in your life anyway is under your control. You make calendars, you make Google calendars and schedules, but nothing is completely under your control anyway. You got to entrust people and you got to entrust things to the Lord. And I think about Jesus's words in Matthew chapter six, verse six. He says, but when you pray, Go away by yourself. This is the NLT. Go away by yourself. Close the door behind you. Close the door behind you. Jesus knows that sometimes the most powerful prayers are spoken in the most powerless places. In your bedroom, because you can't run the world from your bedroom. You can try, but you can't. Go in your bedroom in secret. And your father who sees everything, who sees you in secret, will reward you openly. So hold on to that hope, even though there's a closed door in front of you. It's, it's not the end. If there is a promise, don't throw it out. Don't bury what God is trying to call inside of you to live. Hold on to that hope. And she did. And so this is what happened. In verse 34 through 37, this is the miracle that takes place. And this is our last portion of scripture for the morning. And he went up, starting in verse 34, and he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times. 
and the child opened his eyes. Then he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came in, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The reason why this woman did not kick down the door is because she knew that there was somebody else in the room. And in her case, it was the prophet Elisha. And the prophet Elisha, he ended up stretching himself out on the boy, probably the most close healing you'll ever read about in the Bible. He got up, he started praying, and then he decided to do it again. The body of the boy started warming up. He sneezed seven times out of all things, and then his eyes opened up. And a miracle took place on that house, in that house that day, where a boy who was once absolutely completely dead has now been raised to new life. And that's awesome, and I love that. And I read this story, and I'm so happy for her. And it got me thinking that, you know, we don't have Elisha. Elisha did 16 miracles, double of what Elijah did. 16. But then that was it. That's all he did. But we have a greater Elisha, don't we? Somebody who's much better than Elisha. In fact, Elisha was just a picture of somebody else, really. His job was just to point to the one who is with us, and that is Jesus, Jesus Christ, who is alive. He lives, and he is calling things inside of our heart every day to come alive that were once dead. I believe miracles happen in the heart of people all the time, all the time. And you know, I think about that staff that Gehazi hustled over. He didn't even talk to anybody on the way. He's just like, go, 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 go. And he laid the staff on top of the child. And the staff did nothing. And I think about this cross that Jesus died on. Some scholars think that the cross that Jesus carried was just the horizontal beam, not the vertical. They think that the vertical was already in place by the time that Jesus got there and that they put the horizontal on it. But I think about that vertical beam that would have been there, that Jesus would have died on. There's no power in the beam. There's no power in the the wood. It's just wood. Not until somebody actually stretches themselves out on it. And not just anybody. The perfect sacrifice for our sin, the Lamb of God who took away everything. And not until somebody stretches out on the wooden beam does a miracle take place. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and I'm so thankful. And I want you to know that a door is just a door, and there's no power in that door until the Lamb's blood is marked on that door. That's the only time when salvation happens and people are saved. And so if you are not saved, and that door is in a way close to you, I want to read this verse to you. It's in Luke chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus says, So I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. The door will be open to you if you just knock. I believe that if you come to Jesus, you place your faith in him. You believe that he died on the cross, that he is the son of God, that he rose from the grave, that he is alive today, and you ask him to forgive you of your sins, that door is open. That will no longer be a shut door in your life. That door will come down like the walls of Jericho, I guarantee you, and you will have the Holy Spirit living and abiding in your heart. But if you are in a place 
where you are in need of just a special touch of the Lord this morning. You've experienced death in some way, whether that's been inside of you or literally. We've been, uh, in a way, a hurting church where we've been on the other side of the door of a lot of things. You read the prayer chain and it's request after request after request of we've done what we could, we've done what we could, doctors are doing what they can, conversations have been made, but still we are in this constant place of having to invite Jesus into our life. And the first thing that we have a tendency to do when we are dead or hurting or sick is we isolate ourselves. That's what we're told, isolate. But don't isolate from the one who is in the room with you. He wants to go hand to hand, eye to eye, and he wants to breathe new life into your lungs. And so make your prayer this morning. If you need that, just Lord, help me to see the way you see. Help me to take hold of your hand and guide me through this life, but ultimately breathe your spirit inside of my breath so I can walk in this new life that you've given me. And he has healing in his wings. The other side of the door, it's a really, really difficult and hard place to be. I know it is. Some of you are are in that place. You've done everything and you've been doing good. You've walked by faith. You've made the meals. You've invited people over. You've driven them to practice, but you can't be there for everything. And there's a certain point where that door is shut, but you know who is on the other side. You do know who is on the other side. And thank goodness because Elisha, he was limited in that he couldn't, he, he couldn't even be on both sides of the door when you think about it. He couldn't be with the boy and with the mom, but our God can. He can be on both sides of the door. He's with you. And he can also be with them. But keep that faith. A closed door is not the end of the road. A closed door is not a closed casket. But it's an opportunity for God to work his resurrection life. Tomorrow isn't really promised to any of us. That's why we got to get right with the Lord like today. And we got to come before him with that praise and that thanksgiving. And we got to thank him for every single breath that we have. In the midst of of our breath being taken away, our heartbeat stopping, we have to take advantage of the day that we have in the Lord. So we need to surrender some things or some people. So go ahead and stand with me. And we are going to trust the Lord with uh, this word. And we're going to understand that what falls apart in our lap, if we bring to, if we even bring the place of our greatest disappointment, we're going to experience him do an amazing and awesome work. And um, Jesus did not stay dead after three days. The disciples, they thought that he was just going to be gone. They did. And on the third day, he rose again. There was nothing that could keep him in the grave. And that's our living hope that we have. So pray with me. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross and for making life possible. Thank you, Lord, that this heartbeat and this breath is not all we have, but thank you that you have eternity set before us and that if we trust you with our hearts and lives, Lord, you have so, you wrap us with greater promises, Lord, than what we can just see physically on earth. God, we are on this side of the door of heaven where we know that you are with people who have gone before us, just like how you're with us here, but we're not home. And one day we will be. We're just pilgrims passing by, a place we really don't belong. But one day we're going to go home and we will be with you forever. So we look forward to that day of healing where there's no more sorrow, there's no more death, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. 
We thank you that you are the God of the living and the God of the dead, Lord. That you are alive and living. And we look forward to this greater hope that we have in you, Lord. Help us as we interpret so many shut doors in our life that we can interpret some shut doors as protection, some shut doors as you just waiting, some shut doors as things that we don't even understand. But Lord, help us to understand that, Lord, you are with us and that with prayer, there's so much that is possible. Help us enter into the realm where you specialize in the impossible. God, we thank you and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and finish.